Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Critically acclaimed food writer Claudia Roden, the 2010 Frankie Visiting Fellow at the Whitney Humanities Center, presents a lecture entitled, A Good Soup Holds History and Culture. My interest in food began half a century ago, uh, which was after the Suez Crisis, when my parents came over to London and over the next decade, my life was swamped by members of my family in Egypt, but friends and all kinds of people who were refugees and settled in different countries and not quite sure where to be. And well, at that time, um, what it seemed to me, apart from everybody asking where everybody else was, because we suddenly were dispersed to all the corners of the world, everyone also talked about foods. Uh, they missed, and, and they were all looking for recipes. Uh, well, sorry. Um, we were all worried that we were, might never see each other again. We were worried that we might never see Egypt again, but we wanted to think that maybe the recipes and the good foods that we had was something that we could remember that would keep us happy and warm and give us the memories that we knew. Well, um, we exchanged recipes and though they were, as though they were rare, precious gifts. We had never had cookbooks. Egypt was one of those countries that didn't have cookbooks. In the old days, hardly, most countries didn't have cookbooks, certainly not in the Middle East. Um, well, so we wrote to all our friends in Egypt asking them, have you got any cookbooks to send us? And the only cookbook that came was an Arabic translation of an English cookery book that the army had left behind. And it was all about macaroni cheese and cauliflower cheese and scones and all that. The recipes that I collected uh, in England was a mixed bag because Egypt was a strange country. It was a cosmopolitan country at the time. Um, it was a British protectorate ruled by an Albanian king, uh, by a Turkish aristocracy. Um, and uh, it was a country also full of minorities, Jewish, Armenian, Syrian, Lebanese, Greek, Italian, all of them uh, mixed together and living uh, with a Muslim and Copt population. Well, the, the Jewish community also was itself a mosaic with people who had come from various countries in the Middle East and North Africa, and from cities like Salonika and Livorno, when the opening of the Swiss Canal and the development of the cotton trade had made the country the El Dorado of the Middle East. Um, in that environment, every Every family kept their own dishes as a badge of identity. We used to go to visit our relatives uh, who had come, some of them from Morocco, some from Turkey, some from Syria, uh, some from Iraq, and you could tell their ancestry from their tea table. Ours was Syrian uh, from Aleppo and also Judeo-Spanish from Constantinople. Uh, to a migrating people, Food is a link with the past. It's about roots and identity. Dishes are that part of the immigrant culture that survived the longest. Passed on from one generation to the other, kept up even when clothing, language, religious observance, even music have been abandoned. The French writer Edgar Morin, who was a Jew of, from Salonika, explained very well the importance of food for his community in his book, Vidal et les Siens. He wrote that gastronomy is the kernel of a culture, and that for, for Salonikans, pastelikos is the kernel of the kernel. For some, he said, pastelikos is all that is left of their culture. When I asked a librarian at the British Library for help in finding Arab cookbooks, because I was just looking for recipes just anywhere, he gave me a handwritten list of publications relating to medieval Arab gastronomy. There was nothing contemporary there. 
One was a 13th century culinary manual found in Baghdad and translated in 1939 by Professor Arbery. It was accompanied by poems of the time celebrating food. Another was a 1949 analysis by the French Marxist orientalist Maxime Rodinson. It was of a manuscript of the same period that he had found in, uh, in Damascus in a library during the Second World War. He used the recipes to explain a society that existed more than 700 years ago. I was enthralled at this point to see that recipes could mean so much. Uh, well, many of these medieval recipes had the same names or similar combinations of ingredients, similar spices and aromatics, and similar techniques of those that I'd been hearing from people who were giving my, uh, me family recipes. Well, it seemed that I could hear the people who were talking to me telling me how they pounded, how they did things, how they mashed, that those medieval recipes were saying the same thing. Now, for months, I cooked medieval dishes and entertained friends, and, and I kept having medieval banquets. I've stopped now. Other peoples have taken over. There's something moving, I find, about old historic dishes that reveal the sensuous quality, the tastes and smells and feel of worlds gone by. There is something that makes you feel that is how it was, which was wonderful. From that time, I started to look for references about the origins of dishes. Yes, stuffed vine leaves were first mentioned in ancient Persia, baklava in Ottoman times. The Turks were responsible for croissants. Look at their shape, like the Turkish crescent, and also for the strudels of Vienna. Now, when I decided to turn the recipes into a book, I sought out people from all over the Middle East. I hung around carpet warehouses where I knew I would find Iraqis. I would go there and say, I'm not looking for a carpet, but can I meet your wife? Because I'd like some recipes. And then I would go to the embassies, as I did for the Iranian embassy and the Syrian embassy, and saying, I was asked, is it a visa that you want? I said, no, can I ask somebody for recipes? Well, uh, I also went to the School of Oriental uh, and African Studies. Uh, at that time, nobody was asking for recipes, so in a way, it was a surprise. I think that now, this year, everybody is asking everybody for recipes. Uh, and you know, you go to a market in, in uh, Fez now, and there's all these people with pen and paper uh, trying to get recipes from the vendors, so, and, and everywhere else. Well, when I was uh, uh, telling people that I was writing about Middle Eastern food, I would be asked, is it going to be a, about sheep's eyes and testicles? So, well, uh, somehow, uh, the British had a poor view of the food of, the, of their old colonies. They always managed there not to eat it. Somehow they had foods sent over from England and they taught their servants to cook English food. And when my parents, well, my mother invited my friends for tea, I would ask her, please, just make jelly and scones. You know, because they'd be a bit worried if we did other things. Well, the perception of food in, uh, of the English, even recently, uh, well, 30 years ago or so, 40 years ago, was not very different from that uh, of the explorer Charles Montague Doughty, who traveled in Arabia around 1876. He describes uh, the food as lambs sitting on mountains of rice in a sea of fat. He also wrote that Arabs were better at making love than food. So I had a lot of uh, things to overcome uh, because already people thought uh, it wasn't uh, the done thing for somebody who studied art to write about food. Food was really a taboo subject as well at the time in England. It was something that people didn't talk about or um, uh, well. So because of that, uh, they showed so little interest, I felt I should make the dishes more desirable, and in that, for that, 
I would add folk tales, proverbs, poems about food, and bits of folk knowledge. Garlic wards off evil eye, yellow foods bring joy and happiness, certain foods are aphrodisiac. Uh, well, just more recently, I was in Egypt and, and in Turkey. There are a lot of uh, spice merchants who advertise uh, aphrodisiac space mixtures. And so sometimes they don't say aphrodisiac, they say this is spices to make men happy. And so at one of them in Egypt, I went and I said, have you got something to make women happy? And he said, well, if men are happy, women will be happy. So, <laughs> so when my three children left home all at the same time, I decided to leave too and to travel around the Mediterranean. In the 1970s, uh, everyone had started to become aware of the research of the American nutritionist Ansel Keys. He found that the Mediterranean diet, rich in grain, vegetables, and pulses, fruit and nuts, with plenty of fish and little meat and olive oil uh, as a traditional cooking fat, was healthy. So the BBC uh, heard that I was traveling and uh, I had worked with them over some other things like healthy eating, and they asked me if I would do a television series with them on Mediterranean cookery. After that, the Sunday Times asked me to write a series on the regional foods of Italy for their magazine. For a year, I went to Italy for one or two weeks every month. They, the Sunday Times told me to go wherever I wanted and that I could invite people to join me for meals. In those days, newspapers had plenty of money. <laughs> when the Telegraph sent me to different cities around the world, I became a kind of roving gastronomic reporter. Uh, during the last five years, I researched the food of Spain. Now, writing about food became a way of discovering countries. Uh, I had been very protected in Egypt. I never, never went out on my own. Even when I went back after having been at school in Paris, I had never been out on my own uh, until I was 17 and I never went on public transport. But so, um, so well, when I started to travel, I told my father, I'm going to Egypt. And he said, and I told him, can I find, can you give me the address of where your office was? His office was in the Khan Khalili, or near the Khan Khalili. And he said, you'll never find it because you never went anywhere. You were the girl. You know, so I just, so I replied, well, I'll take a taxi and the taxi will know where it is. Uh, well, so it was a kind of a big change for me to go around on my own. And for a woman alone, researching food is a good way to travel. It gave me a mission and it allowed me to talk to strangers without them being worried uh, or too glad either. Now, wherever I went, uh, I asked everybody that I met, I didn't waste any time about their lives and about their foods. Um, somehow, I started off sometimes by saying, what's your favorite dish? Or else, what do you cook at home? Now, uh, I remember, well, I did it all the time, but I remember particularly, I went on, a, on an Italian train, and uh, I think it was from Naples, on, and I started asking a person next to me, what do you cook? And the person started telling me. Then, all of a sudden, everybody was there around me, telling me what they cooked. And, um, and uh, well, it was very, very fruitful. And I wonder now, if I did this in England, would everybody run away? And probably in America, they would run away as well and think, I'm not going to sit next to a mad person. Now, um, I found that, that I did meet people, I did go, and I had a lot of contacts to start with. Um, I didn't go completely without anybody to start with. Um, but I kept meeting people, and uh, sometimes being passed from the one to the other. And uh, what I found is that the kitchen is an intimate place where people are open. And when you're a stranger, they can find in you. 
uh, in a way that they wouldn't with people that they know well. It's not like sitting in a living room uh, where you behave in a formal way. For me, it was more interesting to hear people talking about their lives and their parents' lives than going to the theater. Uh, I also saw it as my job to taste everything I possibly could. Um, now, uh, I uh, very often when I'm asked to speak, I'm asked to demonstrate cooking, to give recipes, and I'm not going to do it this time, but actually, this is for me a prime of prime importance, the recipes. Uh, so one of the things I did so as not to miss any moment of my travels, it was to just go to restaurants. And I had to ask for half portions, quarter portions of as many things as possible on the menu. Or else I, I sent back an unfinished plate and asked for another one something else on the, menu, uh, uh, on the menu. Now, this created a lot of interest from the waiters, from the customers, and I found that very often, most people around in the, in the um, restaurant were looking at me, wondering what is this woman doing with all this food around her. The, so, uh, at one stage in Naples, several people got up and they were all standing around me. And one of them said, who are you? And I said, I'm English. And then one of them said, can you tell me why English people come to Naples and ask for spaghetti bolognese and cappuccino at the same time? Now, this was... <laughs> uh, uh, it wasn't easy not to overeat. Uh, for instance, there were many times uh, I tried not to overeat, but it wasn't always possible. But there was one occasion in Istanbul where I did the rounds of the kebab houses. And the top kebab houses, you know, they don't have a fridge. They have a huge strong room with all their meats and they have every kind of meat imaginable in it because you can make kebab with everything. And so when I came, I said, you know, I want to discover all your, all the different kebabs that you make. And they would, and, and I said, but I can't eat too much because I'm going to all these other kebab houses. But as soon as I came, they would open the, this strong room and they're saying, look, what do you want to eat? And I said, just tiny bit of this, tiny bit of that. Anyhow, I would get this huge plate, just full, full of different meats to eat. And then I had to go to another place. But on that one occasion, um, I had also promised to go and visit Sephardi ladies who were living in a building in Istanbul where half the building was inhabited by Sephardis or by Jews. They didn't call themselves Sephardis because that's what they were anyway. But uh, half the building up and down, as though it was cut sort of vertically, it was Muslim, the other half was Jewish. Anyhow, there was all these old ladies. Uh, they were old ladies. They would be like me today, I suppose, but at the time. Uh, and they were all had been preparing uh, a book that they were writing to raise money for the Jewish old people's home. And they, had, uh, they all came with a huge tray of little pies, different types of, of pies and, and, and pastries. Uh, and I just looked at that and I said, can I take them with me and I'll eat them afterwards? They said, no, we want to see you eating them because we want to know what you think of them right away, you know. And so I just said, I can't. I can't, you know, and they said, please, please eat them in front of us. So anyway, uh, I did eat them. And I'm sorry to say I had to go to the bathroom, you know, which wasn't bad. But then they gave me bagfuls to take with me. But sometimes I have my regrets, for instance, that I always had the opportunities to go to the best restaurants everywhere. And in Turin, I telephoned this fantastic restaurant uh, that everybody had been telling me about. I've forgotten its name now. 
I'm sort of, well, um, a senior moment. Uh, but um, I suddenly felt I can't go. Uh, you know, I, I just had lunch, and I also went into a patisserie and had cakes. And so I just thought, I'll phone them. And I phoned them, and I said, I can't come. And they said, well, come and don't eat. I said, no, I can't come and not eat. So anyhow, I decided not to go. And instead of waste, so as not to waste time, I started phoning... Um, um, I started, I decided something that I did then after that. I would look up on the telephone directory any number and say, hello, I'm a phoning cold. I'm a, an English journalist writing about the food of Italy. And can you tell me what you eat? <laughs> and so, in a way, because uh, they didn't have to lie, you know, or pretend, it was a good way of getting extra information. I didn't want to waste any time. And, you know, that is how I found that in Milan, this family was not eating uh, risotto anymore. They were eating spaghetti. Uh, the others, uh, they were on the Mediterranean diet. They were saying, have you heard of the Mediterranean diet? Yes. So this is how, in a way, I, I operated in every possible way. But my remit was to find good traditional recipes and the stories they tell about the worlds that shape them. Now, the stories of cuisines are stories about land, about soil, about geography, about climate. They're also uh, stories that reflect the life, the history, the culture of a people, their aspirations, their place in society. When I looked at the history of a country, the dishes fitted in like the pieces of a puzzle. This was something that, for me, was very exciting, and I just sometimes waited for the dish to appear that I thought had to appear, even if I hadn't heard about it, because I knew who had been in the past in that place. Now, there are broad stories that are well known. The spread of Islam and the Ottoman Empire are responsible for a certain culinary unity in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as dishes in, that you find in Spain and Sicily. The Romans grew wheat, grapes, vines, and olive trees in every Mediterranean country. Now, everybody knows that, but the only people who kept reminding me were in Spain, because for some reason that I discovered later, they wanted me to notice the Roman, the Roman influence. Now, uh, in the Mediterranean, another reason for the, uh, the, the similarities of dishes was the age-old and constant traffic between the port cities and the incestuous history around the sea. Same colonizers, same empires, same court cuisines. Uh, it meant that countries had similar products and similar dishes, similar utensils, the clay, the big clay dishes, the skewers, the pestles and mortar, everybody everywhere was pounding away. Now, also because the region was in the spice route, that is why the food is so sensuous, full of flavors and aromas, almost everything that you can think of that gives flavor is used. The arrival of foods from the new world caused the revolution in the kitchens. In Italy, uh, the extraordinary regional diversity is a legacy of the division until the unification 150 years ago. Into, it was divided into many independent sovereign states. Each had its own history, its own culture, and its own traditions, and they didn't really want to know about the others. Until now, there's what you call campanilismo. Uh, and which it means running down the foods of the other regions, running down their products as well, saying their cheese gives cancer, that kind of thing. But, uh, but so in, in, uh, at the Oxford Symposium of Food, we are just in uh, this year going to celebrate the unity of, uh, the uni unification of Italy with a big event and, and food. Now, 
there's also this kaleidoscope of foreign influences uh, that, uh, that reinforce the differences. There was the French in Piemonte, Austrians in Lombardy, uh, in Trentino Alto Adige in Veneto, there's the Yugoslavs in Venezia Giulia, Spaniards in the south, Arabs in Sicily. Uh, uh, well, every year, some of you might know, there's a couscous festival in Trapani and a couscous competition. And uh, one year, I was one of the judges, and all the couscous-making uh, uh, peoples came from all over, all over, uh, well, the couscous regions. And so we had all of the North Africans, we had Lebanon, we had Israel, we had Palestine, and the authorities there managed to get Palestine and Israel to win together because everybody was happy. You know, we had all the television crews and they were saying, are you friends together to the winners, you know? And uh, so uh, somebody there said, you know, Israel has discovered, uh, the, uh, was the first country to do couscous because they've got those big round pellets of couscous that is a bit like pasta. They didn't realize that it was the Moroccan Jews who brought them to Israel now. But anyway, um, sorry. In Spain, food arouses great passions. Uh, dishes have a special place, I feel, at the heart of Spanish identity, more than, more than in other countries, although it is in many countries as well. Uh, there's something about local patriotism, and the dishes are really loaded with emotional baggage that I felt, and they give the measure of a man. It was always so. In the early 17th century, Miguel de Cervantes began the first paragraph in his Don Quixote by describing the gentleman who rode a scraggly horse carrying a wooden lance and an ancient shield as a man who ate lentils on Friday, eggs on Saturdays, sometimes a pigeon on, on Sundays, and an occasional stew with more beef than mutton. Now, what I felt very strongly and very obviously because it's been my my years of research, and not research, but knowledge, was the Muslim presence had a huge impact on the gastronomy, even in parts of the country where their presence was brief. Uh, there is, for instance, in Galicia, an apple stuffed with minced pork. And, you know, in Iran, there is an apple stuffed with minced lamb. So uh, nowhere else have I found, yes, in Konya, I found an apple uh, stuffed with minced lamb because Konya in Turkey was a Seljuk um, uh, capital of the Seljuk Empire, which had association with Iran. Uh, now, when I visited El Molino, a restaurant and center of gastronomic research outside Granada, where they hold courses on the history of Spanish food, I asked about its origins, and I was told Arab and Jewish. And then they gave me an example, and they said, um, well, uh, it was roast pork. And, I, and then they said, well, because when they converted to Christianity, they cooked the pork in the way they cooked lamb. That is why you find sometimes little cumin seeds on roast belly of pork. So you'll know why they're there. You'll also find spinach with raisins and pine nuts, meat cooked with fruit, Moorish almond pastries sold by cloistered nuns in convents. Uh, but one reason why you find bits of ham in everything, including vegetable dishes and fish, mm -hmm. is that the inquisitors always called at lunchtime. So they wanted to see how that people were behaving as proper Christians. There was also a strong and, and early French influence. But when I told people that I was researching the history of the food, many immediately said, you know, we are of Roman and Visigoth stock. Our culture is Roman. Well, recipes don't lie, I have to say.
but uh, well, when I was in Sicily and in southern Italy, uh, I found that they had two types of cuisines. Cucina povera, which was poor food of the peasantry, and cucina nobile of the nobility. An incredibly over-the-top grand style that you'd find in banqueting rooms, at wedding, mafia weddings, uh, which I, I went to quite a few times because I was staying at a hotel that catered for weddings uh, and on, on other great occasions. Now, in, in Italy, they call it spagnolismo and say that it's a legacy of Spanish rule, this grand type of cooking. So I was expecting to find an equally grandiose haute cuisine in Spain, and I kept looking for it. Uh, well, Spain is a land that once had the greatest number of nobles than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and they also, uh, it's a country where they once reveled in ceremony and stately court etiquette. But still, I found there was no such thing as a, a Spanish haute cuisine. Today's creative Nueva Cocina by the star chefs is the first Spanish haute cuisine. The high aristocracy, the royal entourage, and the Madrid court had French cooks, and they ate mainly French food. But the vast number of landed nobility who lived in the countryside never had grand dishes, nor did they have sophisticated taste. They simply ate a lot of meat and game. Uh, that's why they said they had gout. Uh, and their retainers ate foods based on bread, legumes, and vegetables. The, aristoc the aristocratic culture of Spain was a culture of war. It was sober and austere. And the real food of Spain was the food of the peasantry. Until the mid-20th century, 80% of the population lived and worked on the land, which was owned by big landowners and in earlier years by the church and nobility. Now, I learned a good deal about Andalusian peasant food and life in Frailes Jaén. Uh, you see, I wanted always to learn from the people themselves about their own story, their own history, and then go and read it up and, 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 uh, and, uh, and study it when I got to London. But I was staying there with Manuel Ruiz uh, Lopez, known as Manolo El Sereno, and we cooked together and he told me his story. He had worked on an estate in Jaén, Andalusia, since he was seven years old, until he was drafted in the Spanish army of Africa. His 10 siblings were placed in work as children, like him, the girls and families in town. His work was with the mules. In the winter, he and the other resident laborers slept with the horses, mules, and donkeys to keep warm. He returned from the army to find work as the Sereno. The Sereno is the night watchman in Frailes. And, uh, and now his official job is to measure the rainfall and the height of the river. And he's the present of El Dornillo. Uh, this is the gastronomic guild of the province. So I've been elected as one of the members now of El Dornillo. The El Dornillo is a huge wooden mortar um, in which, which the peasants took to the fields to make gazpacho. And it was huge, and they had uh, a pestle, and they just bashed the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the peppers together. They brought olive oil with them, and salt and pepper. And, uh, and well, we were making huge quantities of gazpacho, but we made it with a food processor, and we made it for uh, while I was there for the Fiesta del Dornillo. Uh, and he went on telling me about life in a cortijo. Now, cortijos are that complex of farm buildings around the courtyard that are the center of the old Andalusian estates. Um, there were fruits and vegetables around the cortijo. The rest of the estate was given over to wheat and barley and other dry crops such as lentils, beans, and chickpeas. Some of it was grazing land um, uh, for sheep and goats, and in a few cases for breeding horses or fighting bulls. Now, landowners had overseers to manage their estates and caseras, housekeepers to look after the house. They rented parts of their land to sharecroppers, 
The women there cultivated the patch and kept kitchens. The men got work plowing the land at the estate with their own draft animals. Day laborers were employed on a seasonal basis. As many as 100 people slept on the floor of a long room. Entire families were put up in tiny outhouses. Women picked chickpeas, beans, and lentils. Manolo sometimes helped the women who cooked for the laborers. They made gazpacho, cocido, potaje, and ajo blanco. They made ajo blanco with bean flour, not almonds. Every morning, the, the men made migas. Migas was, is a dish of breadcrumbs. And uh, what I found uh, uh, was that migas and well, most uh, there are the regional foods of Spain, but they are not. Uh, the regional foods are not like in Italy within regional borders. They are perhaps I'll ex have time to explain that. But one of the things that also is uh, is unusual is that there are roots, and there are roots of where the sheep, uh, uh, the transhumans of sheep across Spain, crisscrossing, criss am I making that noise from touching something? Uh, the mic. Um, well, uh, all along those routes, which is all along Spain, uh, people eat migas because this is what the shepherds ate. And migas was breadcrumbs and all different kinds of ways of eating them with bacon, with, uh, with, uh, with eggs, with uh, fruit, with uh, grapes, with chocolate in some, in some cases. Uh, and people talked to me with great love about, uh, about uh, those migas. And they did so about a lot of very, very poor peasant dishes. Now, um, well, when the jornal were working in the fields. They also organized feasts. They danced and sang and played flamenco music. Some of them were gypsies. So I just realized that somehow, despite the hardship, the, despite being a hundred people in a, in a barn, uh, there was also joy and something to remember. And a lot of the songs of those, the gypsies now that I heard were about picking the olives and and working in the fields and the hardships of that, but also the joys. Now, the land in this part of Andalusia has been given over entirely to olive trees. Nothing else is there. It's been divided many times between children of the landowning families, and many of the small sharecroppers and old laborers have bought bits of land from the uh, old estates uh, through their savings from their earnings abroad. They had all gone abroad, they all came back, and, and if they could buy a little bit of land and grow olive trees, they would. Now, they bring their olives to a cooperative for, for pressing. Their oil represents 60% of the production of Jaén, uh, an area that is the greatest producer of olive oil in the world. Now, many cortijos now have been sold to English people as have the little peasant houses and the barns where the work animals used to sleep. Uh, Manolo says that Spain has changed in 25 years more than it had, in 30 years actually, than it had over centuries. Um, uh, well, while uh, uh, now it is immigrant workers uh, who pick the olives, when I ordered gazpacho, uh, nowadays in fashionable tapas bars in New York and London, I think of, of Manolo and the old life uh, on an Andalusian estate. Now, most of the people I spoke to um, uh, were told me about their peasant uh, parents and grandparents. Uh, it seemed that, well, I had too many of stories about peasants. So I decided I've got to find an aristocrat. And so I phoned a few friends and said, do you know of an aristocrat? That <laughs> so so uh, my friend who is a, a food performance artist, a sort of surrealist personality, uh, said, you know, there's Marina Domecq, uh, 
she phoned her, uh, and she is from Jerez. Uh, the family was a great Sherry family, and I phoned her, and I said, do you know an aristocrat? And I'm going to Seville. Is there somebody there? And she said, well, you must uh, uh, contact Jose Maria Ibarra, his Count Ibarra. He's my cousin, and, um, and he's a great gastronome. And so I phoned, and there was Count Ibarra waiting for me. And I spent several uh, days going about the tapas bars and hearing about, uh, well, the past as well, and hearing about another world that I hadn't known about at all. And it was the world of the sherry houses and the people who lived in that part of Spain, um, in the south, who were involved in winemaking, but also horses and other things. And it was a cosmopolitan world. Uh, there were uh, English families who came, who were the, amongst the first sherry families and French families, and um, most of them were aristocrats. Count Ibarra wasn't uh, an aristocratic family. They came from the Basque countries as entrepreneurs in the late 18th century, and they bought up the land from the church at that time and in the 19th century, and they became, um, they became um, uh, ennobled as philanthropists. I'm sure in America you'd have a lot of nobles if uh, these days, because you have so many philanthropists. Well, to go to the Jewish book, it took me 16 years to research a book of Jewish food while working on other projects. Food has uh, always been of great importance to Jews. The observance of religious dietary laws created a spiritual atmosphere around it. And feasting is a major part of festivals. Every holiday has dishes attached to it, and these play a symbolic role in rituals and celebrations. The food tells the story of an uprooted, migrating people and their vanished worlds. You cannot research it by just going to a country. You, and there's not one style of Jewish food, but many. That's why it took so long. Uh, well, in those days, when I started, there weren't uh, the number of many new books now that you can find of the different Jewish communities who came out uh, of the Sephardi world. Um, well, so I did have to go and research it all over the place. I did have a lot of contacts to start with, but a lot of them happened by chance. Uh, for instance, I met, uh, I knew a doctor, Henri Bocara, who had a clinic at the Place Gemma Fna in Marrakech, where some of you might know. Uh, and he, uh, when I went to him, uh, he was, they were cooking uh, Jewish food at home, Jewish uh, Moroccan food at home, and he gave me the name of a white magic man who lived in the Medina, and I went there and spent several days with this family cooking for Shabbat and taking, this, uh, taking the dafina, which is the Sabbath dish, to the bread oven, then going to the public bath to have a bath. Although they had a, uh, they had a bath, they never used it. They also had an oven, and they never used it. And they had a sort of lace uh, cover on the oven, and on it they had uh, a picture of, um, um, well, uh, a magic rabbi who died in Egypt. Anybody remember the name? It will come back to me. But uh, then I, I went to fairs. There was this Jewish woman who had taken over the whole floor of the public bakehouse with her trays of pastries for Shavuot. She told me that her sons were, had joined the Hasidic community in Brooklyn. She had eight sons, uh, but she didn't want to go to Brooklyn. She was uh, doing very well in fairs. And uh, she was just about to go to the synagogue to bring, there were lots of tourists there. She was going to bring her pastries to. Now, in Istanbul, I did have a lot of contacts there. And some people gave me an address. I phoned up. Uh, and I was told, come, we've got a card game. Just arrive. 
and I arrived, and there was all these people uh, playing cards, and every time somebody left the table, they came to talk to me about recipes. There was also uh, talking about a performance they were going to do in Ladino about um, uh, uh, on um, uh, what was oh hmm it'll come back <laughs> um, and well what I heard they gave me a dish one of the dishes that they gave me um, was almodrote de berengena. Uh, which is the, the Ladino spelling um, of aubergine. Uh, and I had just been to Seville, and in Seville I had heard that a similar dish of mashed eggplants, eggs and cheese, was often mentioned in the records of the Court of the Inquisition as one which compromised conversers. Well, uh, have I got time to go on? Okay, I've got, I wonder, whether to tell you about the difficulties of going around the world uh, trying to get traditional dishes when everywhere you find, you used to find French cuisine uh, or, uh, or in the cheaper cafes, chips and sausage and mash, um, uh, where uh, in Italy you would find uh, nuevo, uh, um, creative cuisine of risotto tricolore with strawberries um, and in Sicily they were making cakes from carem, wedding cakes. Well, in Spain um, they teach, uh, the, ca the catering uh, schools teach French cuisine, but all the young chefs, all they want to do is to be like Ferran Adria and they want to learn molecular cuisine, how to cook sous vide with syringes, how to create instant mousses, jellies, and foams with all kinds of machines. And now in Egypt, where tourism is the main industry, I was invited to give seminars by the Chefs Association. They asked me to address the questions about what is Egyptian food, what is Middle Eastern food, what is the history of their food, what should they be cooking. Their hotels were serving international cuisine, and this is international cuisine is now a mix of sushi, Californian, Italian, Mexican dishes, whatever was fashionable in America. That's what international cuisine means today. Uh, it's what's fashionable here. Uh, so, well, uh, um, they were under the impression, the chefs there, that the only dish that... Um, dishes that were really Egyptian were pharaonic dishes uh, that went back to pharaonic times. Well, and they, they do, they actually do. I did some research and found it, but they knew that fava beans and melocheia seeds, melocheia um, is a kind of leaf to make soup, um, they were, these were found in vessels in pharaonic tombs. Uh, the plants figure in, in frescoes and temple reliefs. Now they found DNA in the entrails of mummies. Uh, and uh, so they, the biblical law also describes fava beans as the foods that the Israelites subsisted on when they were slaves in Egypt and for which they craved with nostalgic longing during their time wandering in the wilderness. Still today, um, Sephardi communities eat uh, fava beans at Passover uh, to remember uh, their, time, uh, their time in Egypt. Now, um, uh, well, I think I'll just go on to the last thing that I wanted to say was that, well, another dish, uh, Egyptian dish, is hummus, which you probably know. Now, every year, the BBC World Service asks me to explain on air the origin of the mashed chickpeas and the, uh, with tahina, uh, lemon juice, olive oil, and garlic. Now, this is because there's an ongoing hummus war. And uh, a few years ago, the Lebanese trade industry tried to sue Israel for stealing their recipe and selling hummus all over the world. They said it originated in Lebanon 
And they even tried to get approval from the European Commission to register it as their national dish. Now, Catalonia has done that successfully with several of their dishes. Uh, well, uh, the trouble is hummus is in too many countries, uh, not just Lebanon. And there are two villages. One is near Beirut, and the, um, the other one is the Israeli Arab village of Abu Ghosh. Every year they vie uh, uh, by setting, uh, vie together by making a huge, uh, giant dish of hummus. Uh, and each one, every year, a different one wins the Guinness Book of Records. They keep outdoing each other. And every year, Lebanese cooks in London collaborate to make a giant dish of hummus in Covent Garden. That is when I get to say a few words on the BBC radio. What is, uh, well, I, I, what I say is that um, certainly hummus um, might not have been the origin, the origin might not be in Lebanon, could be in Syria, of course, but Lebanon is, res is responsible for spreading hummus all over the world and creating the demand. The story of the globalization of hummus begins in Zahle, in the Bekaa Valley, which is the world capital of the Arab Meze. According to legend, the special character of the Lebanese Meze was born in the Bekaa Valley, where Arak is produced. Uh, well, uh, uh, it's a story of the, of the cafes who produced, uh, who produced um, all these uh, mezes. Now there are more than 40 mezes. And today, uh, uh, Lebanese restaurants with this typical menu, which never changed, it's written on stone, it's carved in stone, they have come to represent Arab food everywhere around the world. Now, so big is that reputation that Syrian restaurants opening in London call themselves Lebanese. Uh, uh, Iraqi restaurants call themselves Lebanese. And when hotels in Egypt put on a special Egyptian event, they also uh, make it Lebanese. This lecture was delivered on October 28, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center. The Frankie Visiting Scholars and Artists Program, a special residential fellowship at Yale, is made possible through the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie. The creation of this residential fellowship is intended to ensure ongoing interdisciplinary exchange and creative debate at the Whitney in particular and at Yale in general. Ms. Roden's talk was given on October 28, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center.